This morning we'll be reading from Matthew 6. We'll read from verses 5 to 15. And we'll come to the last part of the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. And before we come to the end of the Lord's Prayer here, let's pray together. Good and gracious God, you could have left us in our sins and in the darkness in which we walked, but you have not done so. You have shed light upon our paths, and you have shown us Christ the Savior, and you have shown us to him in your word. And as he teaches us to pray, Lord, cause us to take to heart the words which we do pray. And we ask for these things in his name. Amen. Matthew 6, <clears throat> Matthew 6 rather, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. <clears throat> but if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We come to the, to the final petition in the Lord's Prayer, but really we come to the final part of the final petition. Last week we looked at, lead us not into temptation, and then you follow that up immediately with, but deliver us from evil. And it really is, is two parts of the same petition, but I've broken it up into two different messages because I think each of those parts bears enough weight on its own. But, but as we look at the, at the last part of the Lord's Prayer, as we look back upon the Lord's Prayer, we see that I think you can divide it up into three parts. And the first part has to do with the first three petitions, which bring, bring and ask for glory to be brought to the Lord. You have your kingdom come, your will be done, and the prayer begins, hallowed be your name, with a request for the Lord's name to be revered. So the prayer starts focused on the Lord and His glory, but then it moves on to meeting our needs, both our temporal needs and our spiritual needs. We pray, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We have need for food, and we have need for grace. And so we pray for God to be honored, and then we pray for provision, and now as we move into this last petition, we pray for protection. We pray for protection from temptation, and then we pray as well for protection from evil itself. But that's a, a good question. You, you see, as you come to the last line in the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus teaches, teaches us, in the NIV it says, but deliver us from the evil one. 
But since we oftentimes almost exclusively pray the Lord's Prayer in King James, thighs and thines, the King James recorded the prayer as of Jesus as simply saying, deliver us from evil. And now there, there's good arguments on both sides as to whether it should be evil or evil one, but I tend toward the latter, that really we should best understand this as praying specifically to be delivered from Satan himself. It doesn't matter a whole lot whether we pray deliver us from evil or from the evil one. I don't really particularly think that it does. We know that in the beginning our whole struggle with sin began because of the temptation of the evil one towards our first parents and that temptation and subsequent fall plunged the earth into ruin. But this morning I will focus specifically on what I think is the, the better reading of the text which is deliver us from the evil one, deliver us from Satan himself. Now before we go too, too deep into this passage, I think we need to stop and make sure that we don't fall into a very significant mistake. And that is that it's a, it's a grave mistake, a grave error, if ever we attribute to Satan more than what he is due. That is that we never, ever, ever, ever attribute to Satan anything which is only true of God. But we don't believe in two gods. We don't, we're not an Eastern religion, a, a Far Eastern religion. We are a Middle Eastern religion, but we're not a Far Eastern religion. We don't believe in sort of this yin-yang where there's this e eternal battle between two equal forces of good and evil that are always warring and never one can get the advantage over the other. And that's not what we believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, who is the God over all things and who has no equal. Satan most certainly included. Satan is a creature. He is not eternal, he is not unchangeable, he is not all-knowing, he is not all-powerful, and he is not everywhere present. He is not God's equal, nor is he God's counterpart. And we read of the creation of the devil in Ezekiel 28. In Ezekiel 28, the Lord is laying curses upon different nations and different cities around Israel. And in this particular passage, having to do with the city of Tyre, Lord compares the city of Tyre to Satan. And so we read this striking, very graphic description of Satan's creation and his fall from Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 16. The Lord says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created until righteousness was found in you. Unrighteousness. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. You see here, the Lord speaks of Satan as a creature. Twice we read, he was created. 
Now, is he a great and glorious creature? Absolutely. Perhaps he was the, the greatest of the creatures. Just, just look at the honor that is described and ascribed to him. He walks among these precious stones. He's in the, the Garden of Eden itself. But even still, even though he is so glorious, yet he is created, and yet he can be discovered, and beyond that, as we read towards the end, he can be cast and destroyed. He is nowhere near God's equal. Jude speaks of fallen angels being hurled to the earth, and Satan is the chief. Second Peter speaks of very much the same thing. In Revelation 12, verse 9, we read this of the devil. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and then the angels with him. Such is Satan. Great, powerful, yes, in some sense. But a creature, and even one whom God can hurl. God is God. Jesus is God. But Satan is by no means God. And all that being said, Satan is a dangerous enemy. And Peter says that in 1 Peter 5. says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now I, for one, would, not, would prefer not to be out on a casual stroll if there is a lion around who is prowling and looking for someone to devour. The language that Peter uses is that there is a grave danger from the devil, that he is seeking to devour people, that he would, if left unchecked, devour all people. And we should be wise to be on our guard. We would be wise to be careful, as Peter says, and not to allow ourselves to fall into the path of this prowling lion of an enemy. And we would be wise not to put ourselves in his path by falling ourselves into sin, into the habits of sin, which give foothold for the wicked one to come and to attack us. But sometimes, in God's providence, God allows us to fall into Satan's hands, though never by his grace and to his teeth. You think of the Apostle Paul. We spoke of the Apostle Paul not long ago. The Apostle Paul had this thorn in his flesh. And what did he call it? He said it was a messenger sent from Satan to torment him. Or perhaps one of the most frightening stories in the Scriptures, that of Job. Job has a very interesting relationship with Satan and the Lord. And the, the thing is, he doesn't really know anything about it. Satan comes, as we read in this striking part, before the Lord in Job chapter 1. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. That's startling. There's this great divine drama. Satan presents himself before the Lord. And he comes and the Lord decides he's going to brag on one of his people. And one would normally think that would be a great thing. Wouldn't we like to be God's trophy that he boasts of before the wicked angel Satan? But in this case, it seems like kind of a mixed blessing because Satan, Satan says, well, Lord, I will show you that he does not actually love you. He just loves what you have given him. And what does the Lord say? I will give him into your hand. So Satan goes out and makes Job's life miserable, and then he goes on beyond that. Job does not curse God, and then God gives Satan permission to lay a hand even on Job's body, making his life a physical torment. But even still, God is not cursed by Job to his face, as Satan said. But Satan is allowed to have Job in his hands. But he is never allowed by God's grace to devour Job with his teeth, so to speak. Satan is still at work today. And he's still at work in tempting. Satan has always been a tempter. From the very beginning, even in Eden, as he masquerades as a serpent, he tempts. He has a particular affinity, it seems, for tempting perfect people and seeking to have them fall. He tempts not only Eve and then Adam, but he also tempts Jesus. He tempts him in the wilderness, he tempts him in the garden, and then he tempts him at the cross. We talked about this just last week a little bit. Remember at the cross, around the foot of the cross, as Jesus hangs up there, those who had hung him up there unjustly are shouting taunts at him. And what do they shout at him? Come down from there if you are the Son of God. In other words, prove who you are. And can't you just see the serpent's mouth in the back of their throats and his nasty little forked tongue coming out of their mouths as he beckons through their voices for the Lord Jesus to give up the plan of saving his people to come down and prove himself. And thankfully, the Lord Jesus does not succumb to the temptation, and he does deliver us. So Satan prowls. He tempts. He seeks to destroy. But perhaps even more than that, Satan acts as an accuser. This is the most common, this is the most common designation for Satan in the Scriptures. He is an accuser. He sort of acts like a prosecuting attorney. And the bad news for us is that if Satan hauls us before the bar of God's judgment and he's going to bring accusations against us, he has more than enough evidence to get a conviction. Amen? And so he is the great accuser. And he accuses God's people sometimes before God. We, we see an example of this in Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah chapter 3, with Zechariah has this vision. And the vision is of is of Joshua, the high priest, and the representative of all the people of Israel. And we see Satan as the accuser in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, that is the Lord, and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. So you have a sort of courtroom scene, and the bad news comes in verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. If you'll pardon the pun, Satan has plenty of dirt on Joshua. 
Everything he needs to have a conviction, he already has. Joshua is in these filthy robes. Filthy robes. You are not allowed to be the high priest and wear filthy robes. This symbolizes Joshua's sin. And not only Joshua's sin, but the sin of all the people that Joshua represents, which was all of God's people. In Joshua, all of God's people present themselves before the Lord, sinful, filthy, and helpless. And so, yes, he's a creature, but he is a very, very, very dangerous creature. John Calvin says of him that that is exactly the case. Calvin says, left to ourselves, we are in danger from the devil and from sin. It's true. But I cheated a little bit, and I only, left, I only read part of Calvin's quote. Because, praise God, we are not left to ourselves. This is what he says, the full quote. We are in danger from the devil and from sin if the Lord does not protect and deliver us. We would be in danger. In fact, we would be in the greatest of dangers. If we were left to ourselves, we would most certainly be crushed into an everlasting spiritual death. But we are not left to ourselves. Praise God, Christ. We belong to Christ by faith. And we belong in Christ to the one who has the power to even hurl and cast the devil. We would be in danger, but we are not in danger so long as we are in Christ. That's why this prayer is so great. Because when Jesus commands us and says that you ought to pray, deliver us from the evil one, he knows good and well what he's talking about. He knows that he and his heavenly Father have the ability to perfectly deliver. And so when Jesus tells us to pray, he's not saying pray with kind of a fingers crossed kind of prayer, like maybe, maybe God will be able to save you. He's saying pray to the one who can most definitely answer your prayer. So what do we pray then? What specifically do we pray when we pray these words, deliver me from the evil one? First, we're saying, don't let me fall into temptation. Don't let me fall to it. Don't let me be like Judas. You know, Judas was assaulted by Satan. In fact, we read this in Luke 22. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Those are words worth praying. Don't let me be a Judas. Don't let me betray you. Don't let me fall away from you. I always want to be for you, and I never want to be against you. Don't allow me, as some have gone before me, to fall away. We receive instructions about Satan as well. 1 Peter 5 verse 9 after the verse 8 that we read before continues, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. How do we resist the devil? You know, he, he doesn't appear to us as an actual physical lion, we, don't, we aren't given kind of AR-15s or, or whatever it would take to bring down a lion. How is it that we resist the devil? We resist him firm in our faith. And how do we firm ourselves in our faith? But we pray. 
I, I, would, I would guess that it is next to impossible to resist the devil effectively without prayer. Which is why Jesus teaches us to pray just that. Deliver me from the evil one. We re- read much the same thing from James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, why not pray? Lord, give me the strength to resist. And then keep your promise that as I resist, he will flee. The devil isn't scared of you. He most certainly isn't scared of me. But he is most certainly scared of Christ. And so as we commit ourselves to him, we ask him and his father, the devil, will flee from us. And so we pray, do not let us fall. But we also pray, Lord, don't let him accuse me. He would love to play on your conscience and to make you feel guilty and to make you feel worthless and to make you feel as though you have no place before God. He would love to accuse and to guilt and to shame And he has more than enough material if he wants to accuse us to find some kind of conviction. He has plenty of things that he could load up on us to put guilt upon shame. But we have to remember something very important. Before we come to deliver us from the evil one, we have already prayed, forgive us our debts. And as we come before the Lord to ask for deliverance from the evil one, we have already prayed, deliver us, from evil, but before that, sorry, we have already prayed, forgive us our debts. And if God has forgiven sin, and if God has taken away guilt, and if God has taken away sin and guilt, then there is no reason for shame. And if he comes to accuse after sin has already been forgiven, if he comes to bring guilt after we have already had our actual guilt removed, then his accusations are empty. And he has no ground to stand on. He is a false accuser at that point and so we pray father don't let me slander don't let me slander christ by feeling guilt and shame over things which you have already forgiven you know martin luther the great reformer the start of the reformation he felt particularly strongly the attacks of Satan upon himself. And, and why wouldn't Satan have had a particular interest in Martin Luther? The gospel had, in a sense, laid just in embers for quite some time, and it was, it was uh, concealed or veiled behind all the, the false sacraments and whatnot of the church, the Roman Catholic Church in the West. But Luther, through his study of Galatians and Romans in the writings of St. Augustine, comes to a realization of the true gospel. And he begins to preach the true gospel. And as he begins to preach the true gospel, he begins to fan into flames the truth of the Word of God. And so, of course, you can imagine this does not please the wicked one very much. And so he seems to take a particular interest in Brother Martin. And this is how Martin Luther recalls one particular attack on his conscience going. Martin, you are a liar, greedy, lecherous, a blasphemer, a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. How's that for an accusation? This is how he responded. Well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you do not know the half of it. 
I have done much worse than that, and if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help make it more complete. But you know what? My Savior has died for all my sins, those you mentioned, those I could add, and indeed those I've committed, but I'm so wicked that I'm unaware of having done so. It does not change the fact that Christ has died for all of them. His blood is sufficient, and on the day of judgment I shall be exonerated because he has taken all my sins on himself and clothed me with his own perfect righteousness. This is the kind of, this is the kind of attitude that we pray for. We pray as we pray, deliver me from the evil. And we don't just pray that, that we'll have some sort of uh, a spiritual, ethereal experience. We pray that in the here and now, we will be delivered from false guilt and false shame. Now there is a good guilt and there is a good shame, but once Christ has dealt with that guilt, and once we have brought that before the cross, now there is no guilt and there is no shame, and the devil comes in to assault where there should be no assault. And so we pray that we might be able to answer humbly and truthfully like Luther answered, you are right, I have been guilty. You are wrong, I am no longer guilty. Praise God. And so we pray that. And I think we should see this as well from the prophecy of Zechariah, which I mentioned earlier. Go back to Zechariah 3. Read all the way through to verses 1 to 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Another dramatic scene with the Lord and the serpent. And the, the serpent, the devil, comes with this accusation. And he comes, and of course it seems to be a very legitimate accusation. Here's Joshua the high priest, and he's filthy before God. But in this great surprise, when the, when the judgment comes to be doled out, the Lord points to Satan and says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Now what a turn of events, and why? Because the Lord says, is not this one like a brand plucked from the fire? Is not this one one that I have already saved? Have I not chosen him? If I have chosen him, you have no right to accuse him. And then what do we see? We see this great transformation. As Satan is rebuked, then the angel removes from Joshua these filthy garments, replaces them with clean, white, pure garments, and then Zechariah, who has the vision, actually involves himself in the vision. He can't help himself. He bursts out, put a clean turban on his head too. The turban was a sign of usefulness. It was a sign of service in the house of God. Make him clean. Make him useful again. And from the beginning of the verses to the end, the, the, the high priest Joshua goes from being filthy and dirty and guilty to being white and clean and pure and useful. And do you see who speaks? Satan doesn't get a single word out before he's rebuked. And Joshua never asks for a thing, single thing. The Lord speaks. And Zechariah speaks as well. 
But the devil's accusations are silenced because God does the work of cleansing and purifying. You see, it is the Lord, and only the Lord, who can silence and deliver us from the evil one. And then finally, we pray that we will be ultimately delivered. Just like we prayed with your kingdom come, we pray that the day will one day come when there are no more accusations, where there are no more tempts, and there is no more evil one who can assail us in any way. And as we have prayed before, the good news of this prayer is what we ask for is exactly what will happen. Christ has already won the victory. We see this in Colossians 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. These, these rulers and authorities, this is not speaking specifically about kings or princes. These rulers and authorities are spiritual rulers and authorities, archangels, primarily fallen angels. And how has the Lord triumphed over even the devil himself, but he's triumphed over him, irony of ironies, at the cross. Where it seems as though Christ has been dealt his greatest defeat, the exact opposite is true. At the cross, the devil is dealt his greatest defeat. And we pray that one day the blow which was struck at the cross, which was a mortal blow, will one day come to conclusion as the devil is finally and fully defeated. And we see that prophesied in Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Our prayer, deliver us from the evil one. It is a prayer of humble dependence. Because we acknowledge we can't save ourselves or deliver ourselves. And it is a prayer that God will protect us. You know, my kids, not so much right now, but in the past, have been very concerned about robbers. Are the robbers going to come tonight? Are the robbers going to get us? And I always assure them that I will not let the robbers get us. How much more so then when our Heavenly Father assures us he will not let the devil get us. Can we have faith in him? The scripture speaks, and I'll close with this benediction, the scripture speaks of God who is able and willing to keep. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. And he will surely do it. We pray that we'll be kept. And we will be kept in the power of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your Son teaches us to pray very simple things. To pray for things like bread. 
and to pray these, just these simple few words, deliver us from the evil one. But wrapped up in just these few words is a deliverance that goes beyond our comprehension. In just these few words, in just this short phrase, we have a deliverance which endures forever and ever. We are glad that as you have hurled the serpent to the earth, so one day you will hurl him into the fire and the sulfur. And as you have promised to save, we are glad that you have the power to save. And we pray that in the here and now you would keep us free from the temptations of the devil, that as he prowls around that he would not find us to be easy prey. We pray as well that you would cleanse us from the guilty conscience that he would have us to have even after we are forgiven. That instead of guilt, that you would replace it with a sense of freedom and of joy in Christ. And Father, we pray, simply asking that you would do this because in Christ you love us. We have no other grounds to come before you. We have no right to ask these things except that in Christ you have made us your sons and your daughters. And so we come to you as those whom you love, and we love you. And so we ask for these things in the name of Christ. Amen. We'll stay seated now.